Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion. Thank you for joining us for this sermon. You can find all of our sermons at holycommunion.net and our Facebook, YouTube, and podcast channels. Consider hitting like or subscribe. Consider sharing this sermon with others. It helps us to reach more people like you. We are so thankful to those who support our ministry. You can give today at holycommunion.net backslash give. In the name of our one true loving and creative God, amen. Please be seated. That is one of the trickiest parables I think there is. Uh, And I don't know why I didn't assign somebody else to preach, but here I am. Um, Here's my thought. Our human capacity for imagination is one of the most important assets in the life of faith. The capability we have to enter a story, to identify with characters, to contemplate the potential outcomes is key for the life of faith. And where we put ourselves in the story can tell us a lot. And Jesus regularly used parables, stories like the one we just heard, to open the imaginations of his readers. And Jesus wanted his followers to use their minds, to dive in, to consider the possibilities. And the parable we heard today is perhaps one of the most discussed, debated, confounding stories Jesus told. It's known as the story of the unjust steward, or as it is called in today's translation, the dishonest manager. This is a story that does not easily lend itself to a single clear interpretation. And we don't get a section afterward that says, and Jesus said unto his disciples, this is what I meant. So I want to ask you today to use your imaginations. Think back just a few minutes to when Chester was reading the story. What role did you imagine yourself? Were you a bystander on the road? Were you the manager, wheeling and dealing? Were you one of the indebted people who owed olive oil or wheat? Or were you the rich man? Now, I'm not a statistician, I haven't done a double-blind study, but I have a hunch that most of us living in North America, most of us who are Episcopalians, enter this story imagining ourselves as the rich person. That's where we identify, or where we aspire to identify. And if you identify as the rich man, this story can be really difficult to read. Why is this steward, quote, wasting the estate? How can this guy just cancel these debts? How will the economy continue to function? Also, why do we praise this guy in the end? Why is he called clever? The story changes entirely if you imagine yourself, though, as one of the indebted. This becomes a story of forgiveness, of generosity, of grace. With Jesus, I think it's worth it sometimes to come a little hungry, to tap into that sense of ourselves that can imagine ourselves as impoverished. Helps us remember we could all use a little grace. Sometimes imagining ourselves poor is key to receiving Jesus. That's another sermon for another day. Today, I want to make a case for you that in 2022, 
as North Americans seeking to follow Jesus, we need to learn to identify a little more with the character called the unjust steward or the dishonest manager. And I know it sounds like a strange thing for your pastor to tell you, for the preacher to tell you, to identify with the words dishonest and unjust, right? That's weird. Hear me out. This parable, we might actually call it in the language that the rich man chooses at the end, the tale of the clever manager. He's clever because he puts money in a godly perspective. He's as wise as a serpent. He sees money as a means to an end rather than an end in itself. Let me say that again. This, this character is clever because he sees money as a means to an end rather than an end to itself. God doesn't care about making us rich. When Jesus was asked about money and taxes, you remember what he said? He turned to his inquisitor and he said, take a coin out of your pocket. Whose image is on that coin? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Money isn't the end. It's a means to an end. God wants us to use our money creatively to make a difference. Now, a lot of what is tricky about this story are the gaps. We're left to fill in details with our imaginations. We actually don't know what the story means when Jesus says that this servant was, quote, wasting the estate. We don't ever get the report. So I imagine that detail could have really mattered. Maybe there was a drought. And there was less olive oil to collect, little grain to harvest. And maybe while the master was away, the manager had to make decisions about how to treat longtime business partners. Maybe what was reported as wasting could also have been called compassion. What reasons could you identify for the manager to have acted this way? You see, if we imagine there's more to the story, if we fill in those gaps, it helps make sense of what happens next. The manager uses the last moments of his employment to lighten the burden on his neighbors, changing the contracts. And this is where we often get caught in the story, right? All of us good capitalists. This is where the economics really frustrates us. So let's take a break for a moment. Let's get out of our biblical text. I don't really know what those shekels and ephahs meant in the first reading anyway. Let's take it to today. I want to share with you a little adventure that Episcopal churches in our region, including Holy Communion, are undertaking right now. It's not a new experiment. We're not the first churches to try it, but it's been kind of fun so far. And this experiment, I think, has a certain rhyme with today's parable. You see, this year, the bishop sent every church in the diocese in our region a check for $1,000. Now, $1,000 doesn't make a big dent in our budget, right? But it's nice. And the bishop attached one string to this $1,000. The bishop said, you have to use it for justice or outreach ministry. And it would have been pretty easy for the vestry to just say, great, we'll take $1,000 we were going to spend on one of our outreach ministries and put it somewhere else in the budget and done. 
But my colleague, John Stratton, who started out his career in the church here at Holy Communion as a youth minister, and now is the rector down at Trinity Church in the Central West End, he said, don't, let's not do that. Let's organize the churches in the St. Louis metro region to pool their money. We can do more together. And once we did that, I tossed in a little bit of extra from our outreach budget, because Holy Communion in the St. Louis churches, we do okay. Um, we had a little bit of extra in the outreach budget, so I tossed a little bit of uh, more in. Y'all are welcome to make a commitment too when I tell you what it's actually about. All of this money that is collected is gonna go to canceling medical debt. Medical debt in our region. And this is why it rhymes with the parable. As medical debt is fascinating to read alongside this story today because neither one of them makes clear economic sense. Have you ever opened one of those explanation of benefits? <laughs> explanation is a really strong word in my opinion for those, right? <laughs> and, and I was a theology major, but I can never make the math add up in that, right? The char hospital charges $10,000, your insurance agrees to pay $1.380, and you owe 40. I, it doesn't make sense, but, but what makes worse sense is that because of the way our insurance companies negotiate for us, we owe thousands of dollars less, usually, than we would if we didn't have insurance. The uninsured pay more for healthcare than insurance companies do. How does that make sense? And over time, hospitals accumulate a huge amount of debt from people who can't pay. And hospitals aren't banks. They don't like holding debt. So they sell the debt. And the hospitals get pennies on the dollar for what is owed to them. And it's part of why those hospital bills are so big. It has something to do with macroeconomics, which I never took in college, so that's as far as I go. But what happens next is really awful. Is that the bills transfer from the hospitals to bill collectors, usually, who then harass folks, ping credit reports, even bring folks into court. If you owe medical debt, you are not alone. An estimated 41% of working age adults have medical debt. 72 million of us in America. And unsurprisingly, higher percentages of households of color and other historically and systemically marginalized communities are more likely to carry medical debt. And there's no way for the church to seek out your particular medical debt. I, I wish there were but they don't work it that way. They sell this debt in big bundles. So if you're in medical debt, please don't hesitate to reach out to clergy. There are nonprofit credit um, organizations that can help consolidate, help you with things. We might even be able to get some things forgiven, but we'd have to work with partners. But on the macro level, our little adventure, our little experiment as Episcopalians in this part of Missouri, we're using our imagination to step in into the place where a debt collector would usually go. And the amazing thing is with just $26,000, which we're seeking to raise, and we're just under 24,000 now, and you can go at holycommunion.net backslash info and contribute if you want, we'd love it. But just that $26,000 that we're seeking to raise, we will be able to cancel $2.6 million of medical debt. That's where the math is funny. 
That's where you get into these questions of is this the dishonest manager or the clever manager? This may feel like a bit of a cheat. And buying debt this way, it doesn't fix the inequities in the system and it participates in the crazy economics the insurance companies require the hospitals to play. And the experiment doesn't cover folks for future care. That will take more imaginative work. But I like to imagine this moment when somebody gets an envelope to their door and when they open it up, rather than listing the new company that owns their debt, their new interest rate, or what day it is they have to appear in court, it says simply, the Episcopal Church in Missouri bought and forgave your debt. You owe zero dollars. Can you imagine what that would be like to receive that letter? Especially if you're juggling a bunch of bills to have one that says zero dollars due. I think what John Stratton has led our church and other churches in our region to do rhymes with the actions of the so-called dishonest manager in today's parable. The approach puts people first, not money. It's sort of a way of putting God ahead of money as Jesus asks us to do at the end of today's story. For those of you who are here in the building, and maybe Rebecca can make the camera go up to the high altar, but when I came to interview as a priest for Holy Communion, uh, one of the things we did, we had a little vestry Eucharist in the chapel before we had my interview. And as we were walking here across the um, altar rail, up where the main part of the, you know, when we faced that way, I paused and I looked at those medallions up by the altar. So a bunch of you will have to turn around to see it. I'm sure you've seen it before. But on the right, we've got the Cairo, right? That recognized sign for Jesus's name. And on the left, it's meant to be an IHS, which is the first letters of Jesus's name in Greek. But gosh, it looks like a dollar sign. <laughs> and so I paused and it just happened to be Brett Chapel, who at the time was the, um, the, vestries sec uh, the vestries treasurer. And I looked at Brett and I said, is this so every week at Holy Communion they can decide whether they're worshiping God or money? <laughs> I think that's when I got the job in Brett's idea. But, but this is a parable that sometimes we have difficulty with. This is a teaching that sometimes we have difficulty with. But I think this story and entering this story with our imaginations, it helps. We're getting ready for the stewardship season here at Holy Communion. We don't have cards yet. We're not launched yet. But in a few weeks, we'll start asking you to give some of your hard-earned money at church. I know a lot of you already are. We're really grateful. We'll be asking you to take next steps in generosity. You know how it goes. I, I had a mentor in ministry, the Reverend Luis Leon, who always used to preach at this time of year this simple line. He always used to say, money is a powerful tool. If you can give away some of your money, you have power over the tool. If you can't give away some of the money, it has power over you. And simple and it's true. And I want to make an addition. See, there are churches out there that will tell you, if you give your money to the church, you'll get more money in return. God will bless you. And you might be surprised. I half agree. See, I don't think God will magically give you a raise if you raise your donating to the church. It doesn't work that way. But I've never met somebody who regretted giving money away. I've met people that have regretted a particular cause or a particular charity or a particular candidate that they've donated to, maybe more of the last one, but I've never met somebody who has regretted 
the act of generosity. Because generosity is an inherently spiritual practice. Money is a powerful tool. If you have money, you have the power to make a difference. If you are economically secure as a Christian, you have a chance to make a difference for your neighbor. I think God wants us to use our imaginations to be clever. Did you see the news that the founder of Patagonia Sportswear just donated his whole company to a nonprofit? All of Patagonia's income from here on out is going to go to fight climate change. And that's the kind of imagination I'm talking about. Now, I know most of us don't have $3 billion companies to give away, but what can you imagine? A number of us are getting ready to watch a funeral tomorrow. You knew I had to talk about this, right? For Queen Elizabeth. Is there some in this congregation who will get up early to watch it live, right? And I wonder if that impulse to imagine ourselves as the rich man in today's gospel story is related to our fascination with the royals. Don't we all just want to pretend like we could be queen? As a priest in the Anglican tradition, it's like watching the Super Bowl for me. The Archbishop of Canterbury is on TV more often than I've ever seen him right now. Uh, and certainly after tomorrow, I will have opinions and commentary on all sorts of liturgical choices, music, vestments. Gene, I want to talk to you about what they're doing with candles already. Where's Gene Parker? There's beeswax all over the floor in Westminster Hall. And Gene, I just thought of you this week. But I'm going to have a lot of opinions about that. But mostly right now, so far, I wish there was more Christian imagination at play. I wish instead of being wrapped in all that velvet, the queen had, for instance, decided to be buried in a plain pine box. And she could have directed half of the salaries of those feather-bedecked guards to go to a local soup kitchen. They could have taken the budget for all this pageantry, cut it in half, and given the money to help house the poor. They could have paid into reparations funds for the former colonies, help South Africans or Jamaicans go to college. It would be political theater, sure, but unlike the trick that the governor of Florida just played on a bunch of Venezuelan migrants, giving money to the poor publicly would help the most vulnerable and might inspire some creativity from others. As Christians, I think today's story invites us to use our money imaginatively for the repair of the world. How do we give our money creatively? How do we use our wealth to lighten the loads of our neighbors? How can we serve God by holding on to our money a little less tightly? I think it'll take some imagination, but what an adventure. Doesn't giving creatively sound like fun? Amen.